Hi, everybody. This is Mikey D. Welcome to my stoop. There once was a small American town, and although it sat in the forgotten corner of a giant city, it was much like any other small community around America. Everyone knew everyone else's name and everyone's business. Instead of a stream or a brook, we had the fire hydrant. We didn't have farmer's markets, but we did have a well-stocked bodega. And rather than sitting on the front porch to watch the little world fall by, we sat on our stoops. And it seems like an ancient time, like it was some lost city. It was like I had watched it all from the stoops of Atlantis. It seems God stopped making characters. Or more likely, our culture is more interested in creating prefab, pre-molded, mass-produced personalities, or lack thereof. In the 70s and early 80s in East Harlem, the streets were filled with characters of all shapes, colors, and sizes. Many single-use molds were used and broken, smashed on the curb. All these outcasts, misfits, and lost souls were known by me from the perspective of my stoop. I really never got to know these folks from their stoop, from their world. What was it like being them? How did they perceive me? There were dozens, probably, but there were only a handful of characters that make the Hall of Fame, or the Stoop of Fame. So here we have them, the five first inductees of the East Harlem Broken Mold Character Hall of Fame. Number five. Before there was DJ Cool, Curtis Blow, or Grandmaster Flash, there was Ryman Ralph. I don't know how old he was. We were 10, 12, and he seemed like he was in his 60s. He was probably 30. He was an African-American man, actually a man-child, an innocent, a simple guy who would hang around us kids making us laugh with his silly rhymes. Hey Mike, what's so funny? Bugs Bunny stole your money? Or, Mike, go get your bike and ride a trike. Don't pop a tire on a spike. No matter how many times he repeated it over the years, we would laugh. He was a summertime, sunny days on the stoop fixture. He would root us on when we played stoop ball and even took a turn playing scullies, or, or checkers as we called it. Seeing this big adult crouching down to take a shot at his scully wasn't odd or funny at the time. It was just part of life on a Hunt 18. He'd walk down the street with an animated bop, big cheesy smile on his face. Especially when he was coming from Rex's Icy Store. Like a big kid, he would joyfully devour the lemon ice. He really was a big kid. But another thing about Ralph that always struck me was his memory for birthdays. Every July 2nd, without a prompt, he would say, Happy birthday, Mike. It always amazed me. Year after year, until one day, well, Ralph just didn't hang around anymore. Us kids were getting older. And if I recall correctly, I think he moved to Florida in the early 80s, shortly after his grandmother died. I cannot look back at those days around those stoops of Atlantis and not think of Ralph. Good old little kid Ryman Ralph. Number four. Rex's Icy Store had a melancholy vibe. It was owned by a man and his mother. He was a friendly guy, but he could be impatient and had a certain sadness hazing his eyes. His mother was a fiery woman with wild white hair 
and she had obviously passed a bit of her own impatience to her son, but she hoarded most for herself. You could tell Rex loved his mom, but I, but I could feel the drain she had on him. Rex's Isis is a landmark, a place me and my friends visited multiple times a day. It had a really high ceiling, dirty white walls, with this nostalgia-style list of flavors that had long been relegated to the flavor graveyard. There was even a sign pushing their homemade donuts, an item probably not offered since Kennedy was in office. They had the following flavors, and these flavors were there time and time again. There was lemon, cherry, chocolate, cream, pineapple, and that enigmatic lily with nuts, whatever the heck that was. I would beg him to make tutti frutti, which was on that ancient list, and he would wave me off. Get the hell out of here! The place hit its peak in the 70s and early 80s when they added a couple of video game machines, and the candy selection really improved, but that resulted in a huge problem. Well, at least for the old lady. Good business. We would hang out in there playing video games and buying candy and ices, but the racket of kids crushing asteroids and killing aliens was a bit too much for Rex's mother. Oh, my on with the racket, she would shout. And never mind if you were a bit indecisive about your candy of the day choice. More than once I would stand there, eyes scanning the shelves. Would it be Lemonheads? Nowelators? Maybe, maybe a pack of Sweet Tarts or a dozen Jolly Ranchers? Well, the old lady was not one to barter and not one to try to upsell you. She wanted your ass out of the store. She would grab anything randomly, slam it on the counter and say, hey, hey, hey take this, it's five cents. That became like a long-running joke. We still joke about that. Rex had a bizarre sense of humor, and he had this running gag with my cousin Joe. Joe's a big guy, and Rex donned him the big fella, who he once promised he was going to whack with poison in his icy. I wonder how much cyanide it would take to take out the big fella. I'm going to put some rat poison in his next chocolate ice. He'd say stuff like that. Seriously. We laughed, but at the same time, we kind of wondered. Hmm. Nah. Now the old lady? Yeah, she might do that. Number three. Ida once crushed a roach on the wall with two fingers and went about her business like she had hailed a cab. She was a single mother trying to raise my good buddy Vito. Vito was a good guy, but not the brightest bulb on Broadway. She would go out only usually when she needed groceries, although often she would toss cash out the window to me to get her a pack of cigarettes or something. You see, Vito often spent his summers in New Jersey, on some farm with his uncle or something, so Vito was like a cold weather friend, literally, and never was part of the summer hijinks that colors this podcast so often. He moved out, away from her, when he was about 13. She was kind of a lonely soul, or at least she seemed that way. Her father, Vito's granddad, moved in when Vito's grandmother died, and he was a trip, telling us how he drooled over Linda Carter's, aka Wonder Woman's, wondrous rack. Hey guys, take a look at them tits. He would actually say that to us. We were like 11. We would giggle. I'll never forget the day we were pulling our wallet on the fishing line gag, and we spotted Ida approaching from First Avenue with bags of groceries. She would be the perfect pigeon. And since it was summer, and Vito was off riding tractors, he wasn't around to challenge us with his favorite wrestling moves. See, he was this huge WWF fan, so he couldn't keep us from punking his mom. And she bit. I mean, really bit. She put her bags down and she followed the wallet, teasingly scurrying along the sidewalk on our string, into the street, and across to our side, before she cursed, did an about-face, grabbed her bags, and went back upstairs to crush roaches or whatever. We were such SOBs. She liked my nostrils. Yeah, Ida would comment from three stories up as I watched her dollar bills flop down for another pack of Kingston menthols that she liked the shape of my nostrils. 
yeah, I, I don't know either. You could call him Ding Dong or Ding Ding, but no matter how you name it, this big lug of a foghorn leghorn looking whack job was a major league character on On 18. He was my neighbor and had a dog, a ragtag mutt named Corky. His mother was Mary and she owned a candy store on Pleasant Avenue, whose back room housed Onokyo, the leader of the mafia of all over the world. Well, at least according to Jimmy Breslin. Ding Ding hung around with a bunch of local heroin addicts, bookies, and I think once a guy that looked like Keith Richards. In fact, it might have been Keith Richards. He took over behind the counter at the candy store, <laughs> and us kids would piss him off as we hung around the comic racks too long. You see, a sense of theme in these tall shop owners hated kid business. I don't know. It was crazy, but maybe our money smelled bad or something. I think I told this story in a previous episode, but he once pulled a gun from a shelf and aimed it our way. Enough! Get out! We all ducked and laughed. Pretty sure it was one of those silver cap cowboy pistols we all had as kids, but this was his tall. See, I never really knew. Then there was that time he passed down on his stoop. Down by some chemical concoction he drank, popped, or injected. Down for the cow, butt crack smiling at the summer sun. A couple of con ed workers who had been on the block for days, sitting around in holes, were nice enough to lift the big fella, groaning as they lifted him. Man, this guy weighs! They managed to get him into his house as his mother Mary shook her head. I could hear her inner dialogue even now. The sounds, exclamations, battles, half-hearted glovers, quarrels, etc. that sounded from Ding Ding's house were hilarious. The most bizarre was the night Ding Ding came home in some sort of state, shouting which he repeated over and over, his volume and enthusiasm slowly but surely diminishing until I assume he fell asleep. Or maybe he died. <laughs> I don't know. Well, at least until the next day when his buddy decided to take a dip in our pool. People are strange when you're a stranger. While Joey Ding Ding slugged beers and burned his pork chops on smoldering briquettes, his little wacky sidekick, flying on beers and what else knows, jumped into our above the ground Sears swimming pool. It scared the crap out of my little sister. My father was summoned to scare him off. After making sure the dude didn't leave any floors behind, I jumped in the pool and started one of my more surreal events of my memories. A hose fight with Ding Ding and company. It played out almost in slow motion in my mind. Charlie's buddy, huge smile on his face, eyes glowing with inebriation, firing his hose at me, steady, non-stop, as I ducked under the water, popped up, ducked, popped up, ducked, popped up, each time getting a face full of high-density water. He just stood there firing. So I grabbed my hose and fired back, but I hit Ding Ding in the face. And I figured, what the heck? I just held it. That image of Charlie Ding Ding chomping on his well-done pork chops, water blasting him directly in his wide, fat face, and him yelling out, Hey, my pork chops! will forever haunt me with hilarity. And we were all laughing. Charlie too. It was a hoot. Number one. His real nickname was Boopsy. Somehow we made up our own nickname for him, Booby Coy. He still lives in the same apartment on Pleasant Avenue, and he still looks like a grayer version of his old self. Good head of hair, which he wore in a pompadour style with thick sideburns, sort of like an Overs impersonator who really didn't try hard enough. He would dress in bright rayon and polyester pants with matching patent leather shoes, 
polished to a shine that sent colored beams of sunlight as he walked. Well, maybe. And he had matching Hawaiian shirts with sunglasses framed in perfectly matching hues. Booby Cooley was, and is, my favorite character in the East Palm Hall of Fame. I was heading up First Avenue on the bus one night, and Booby was there, standing with his hair coiffed perfectly, and he had that look in his eyes like a gunfighter, ready. I waved and he smiled. Here we go, pass at 96th Street, hit the beach! He was referring to the shift in neighborhoods that at that time when you went up into the hundreds, or tougher, where our stoops of Atlantis were. He had been wandering around Midtown, alone, admiring the buildings. A sad loner. A nice guy, still is. He smiled as he told me about that new Citicorp building with its slanted solar panel top. He pumped his fist. I love that Citicorp building, he said, with real passion. Booby was a model maker. Cars, planes, you know, plastic model kits. And I understand he was a master, though I never saw a single one. He was like some quirky Lone Ranger superhero that wandered the night. I often thought he would make a great character in a spy series. He would chat with us, he would chat with them, with anyone that would take the time to offer an ear and a few moments of friendship. I still see him up there when I visit the old neighborhood. He looks the same. Still says hello and stops for a chat. If he didn't like you, he would say things like, Look at that mole over there, he thinks he's a rocketeer on the avenue, the capo. He's the captain, hey, he's the boss, he thinks he's the boss. But if he liked you, he would smile, wave, and shoot the breeze. The colorful characters of East Harlem in those days were memorable, and we knew them all. We didn't fear them, we lived amongst them. They were lonely and kind of lost. We chatted with them, played tricks on them, and sprayed water in their faces while they tried to eat pork chops. And you know, I always wondered what they thought of me, from the view from their stoop. Did I impact them in a positive way? Did they enjoy my company as much as I enjoyed theirs? You never really know what drives folks' seemingly crazy actions or what people feel about you, how important you may have been to them until you see the world from their stoop. I do know that some will be preserved forever in my memory like little treasures. Some are just impossible to forget. It was a special crazy era, humans and wild and wacky molds that were smashed to pieces never to be remolded on those stoops of Atlantis. This has been The Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. Stay tuned for future episodes as we journey back to that ancient mythical land that actually existed, East Harlem. And please join the Stoops of Atlantis Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, and subscribe on YouTube or iTunes. See you next time.